everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. There we go. So, uh, clerical celibacy in the early church, as I'm sure hopefully everyone here, everyone here is Catholic, right? Basically, okay, so sometimes we get, we do hit Protestants. I'm yeah, um, okay. Um, uh, uh, everyone here should know, of course, that uh, celibacy is required of Catholic priests in the Latin Rite uh, at, this, at this present time. Let me see if I can get this to move. So I'm going to talk about it uh, in this lecture, but I want to talk about this uh, first to clear up terms because there are different ways that the word celibacy in English can mean several different things. I'm going to sort of separate some of these meanings out to make this clearer for everybody. Um, Celibacy can mean several things. It can mean being unmarried. It can mean not having sex. It can mean just being sort of chaste in terms of your thoughts and everything. I'm going to use three different words in this lecture for, those, for each of those things. Um, for the purpose of this lecture, uh, celibate, I'm going to use that word to refer to unmarried priests. Right? Unmarried priests. Um, continence or continent means sexual abstinence. And I'll sort of show you why I'm doing this in a moment, but for purpose of the lecture, I'm going to refer to it as continence. And then chastity, this is kind of unique to me, but chastity, I think of as being something interior, right? You don't, you're not lustful, you don't think lustful thoughts. Jesus says at some point in the, which one of the, Mark, 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 one of, yeah, it's Mark, sure. Uh, one of the Gospels <laughs> that um, he's talking about to the Pharisees about things that come out of you or what defile you, not what you, what you eat ritually, right? One of the things that says come out of you is unchastity. So he's probably thinking about interior motives, thoughts, desires, and stuff like this. Why do I mention this? Well, this gets us directly to what the church currently teaches, the Western church, the Latin church, because we'll talk about the East as well in this lecture, uh, about clerical celibacy. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that uh, all the ordained ministers of the Latin church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom uh, of heaven, unquote, right? So that's what that is supposed to be at the present time. And this is another thing. This is the Code of Canon Law, uh, which currently refers to the 1983 version of Canon Law. Clerics are obliged to observe perfect and perpetual continence. I italicize that for a reason. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, and therefore are bound to celibacy, which is a special gift of God by which sacred ministers can adhere more easily to Christ with an undivided heart and are able to dedicate themselves more freely to the service of God and humanity. So in other words, I'm using those words differently because the church in its formal documents does. Celibacy means unmarried. Continence is what they are bound to right? when you become a, a priest. Um, and the Catholic Church, which were ordained. Um, so, um, so what's the debate about in terms of the early church? Because this is something that, uh, as you're going to understand in this lecture, if you don't understand, the discipline we have today, where basically you had to be both unmarried and continent as a priest, did not develop in the Latin church really to a later period. Um, that uh, universal uh, requirement came from a later period. And so there's a debate about, okay, how much does this actually come out of you know, the apostolic period? Does it come from the apostles? Was this something invented in the 4th century? And so I'm going to give you an outline. This is a broad outline of a, a much more convoluted debate uh, about whether or not it's actually you know, from the early church. And the argument against it goes something like this. Uh, the argument against this, and we'll get to the biblical evidence in a second, is that the Bible is equivocal on this subject. Christ mentions celibacy, we'll get to this in a moment, uh, uh, continence as well, in the Bible, 
but never connects it explicitly to the ministry. So you can't require priests to be continent that way. Uh, a second thing in this uh, contra argument against celibacy being brought into the early church is that married uh, clergy with marital relations was the norm before the fourth century. That is to say, it was normal, according to the historians who make this argument, for clergy to be married uh, and to normally, when I say married, to have kids, basically, after they were ordained. Uh, third, uh, in the third to fourth centuries, an exaggerated asceticism crept into the church, possibly from not pagan or non Christian sources. Uh, so the argument goes. In a moment. Um, at the same time, in the fourth century, you have what some historians talk about as the sacralization of the priesthood. What does that mean? That's a fancy word for meaning the clergy begin to claim more and more power. Uh, and they do this by appealing to their own practice of continence or celibacy. In other words, the claim that they are more pure than the laity or something like this. This is a dumbed-down version of this argument, trust me. Um, also, what you have in the 4th century, according to this argument, um, is concern for ritual purity as the da- as uh, daily Eucharist becomes common in the West, especially in the 4th century. That is to say, people are concerned about, well, they basically, the, the, the criticism here is that well, people in the 4th century, because they were influenced presumably by non-Christian sources, that sex is kind of icky, and therefore you don't feel having sex before they handle the Eucharist. Um, and uh, also that clerical celibacy as imposed, uh, you can say imposed after the 4th century, led to the denigration of marriage and sex and so on and so forth. I think that's the whole, this is in broad outline, by the way. This is, this is a strong version of the Contra argument. Most historians, when they argue against clerical celibacy, don't make it this strong. <laughs> I'm picking out the strongest arguments I've found, basically. Uh, and so that's the argument against. The argument for goes something like this. Uh, Christ clearly connected uh, the ministry to continents uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. Uh, two, the apostles were either unmarried or lived continently with their wives. Because you'll get the argument that they were all basically, not all married, but most of them were married uh, by some historians uh, on the other side. Three, the influence of apocalyptic expectations um, influenced people to be continent uh, in uh, the early church, especially the apostolic period uh, as well. Because they thought, you know, Jesus was coming back really soon. There was no reason to have sort of family if the second coming is going to come in a few years. Uh, also, of course, Christ as a model. That is to say, he is celibate, he is continent, therefore you're supposed to imitate Christ, therefore that's how you're supposed to act. Another part of this is that they, these historians will argue that there is evidence that clerical celibacy slash continence was an obligatory norm throughout the early church. They will argue that there is, there are theologians saying that, hey, all the clergy are continent after they're uh, ordained, basically. They will also uh, make the argument that purity was connected to the office of the priesthood, the clergy, before the Eucharist came, became common, especially in the West. And then finally, they'll make the argument that clerical marriage and the norms surrounding in the early church, because by the way, there were married clergy. In fact, I'll, I'll spoil this for you. The consensus, and it's pretty much obvious, most priests probably were married uh, for the first four or five centuries uh, of the church's history, were still related to concerns about continence and chastity. And I'll explain that further in a second. Those are the big, strong arguments for both sides. I'm here to tell you, by the way, neither one of them is correct. <laughs> in fact, as you're going to show you in a moment, it's really hard to make either of those arguments stick before the 4th and 5th centuries for good reasons. Um, and yet, and this is the important thing to know, is that the teachings of the church as they exist today 
or in my opinion, well, they have to be perfectly consistent with the evidence as we have it. Evidence doesn't prove that or anything like that, but they're consistent. And so I'll show you what I mean by this, by going through the evidence one by one. So briefly, just a little bit of background on um, celibacy continents before the early immediate uh, predecessor of Christianity, ancient Israel. Um, you probably know this, but Judaism is very much doesn't have much use for celibacy. Uh, it's all about marriage and family for the most part. There's a presumption in favor of marriage in the Talmud, uh, in um, among rabbis. In fact, if you go back to um, um, Saint Paul, of course, was a rabbi. There was an expectation among rabbis in his day that they were going to get married. And if they didn't, there was something wrong with them. So it was very, very rare for a rabbi to be unmarried, which is why, by the way, some people think Paul had been married before or was married uh, and then sort of went off uh, and became continent after he, uh, his conversion. There was periodic continence uh, practiced by uh, Levite priests in the temple in Jerusalem. What that means is, basically, there are um, injunctions in Leviticus which enjoin um, priests to not have intercourse with their wives before uh, before they, or to separate them before they go into the temple, basically. In other words, it's a concern with ritual purity. So you would abstain from certain times periodically, but not perpetually. The one figure who appears in the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Scriptures, as a continent figure, as a celibate figure, is actually the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and he only appears in that guise because he's predicting the doom of Israel, and so he doesn't see much point. And again, if a collapse is coming, there's no reason to start a family. And he has, plus, he's getting you know direct messages from God. Um, you also, though, have two outliers just before the time of uh, Christ in the early first century BC and then uh, first century AD. A couple of uh, groups I don't have my notes with me. I could tell you more about, but the Therapeutae were. Uh, people who went and lived in groups um, celibately. Um, we know this from the uh, first century Jewish writer Philo of Alexandria who talked about these people. It's a Greek term, so he writes in Greek. Uh, but there were Jewish communities in Alexandria who did this, who practiced this. They were outliers. They were a very tiny minority. As well as the Essenes. Everyone know who the Essenes were? This was this breakaway group. Okay, this is a breakaway group within Judaism, early first century, late first century, who went out into the desert, desert and more or less formed a monastic community. Uh, they thought the church, the, the church, uh, the temple in Jerusalem was corrupt. They wanted to get away from it. They established their own rituals. They had their own ritual calendar, which was different from the one in Jerusalem. And essentially most of them, some of them at least, were celibate monks or like celibate monks there. Uh, but these are, again, and partly, by the way, they were, they were deeply influenced by apocalyptic beliefs. That's something to come back to. They believed there would be this coming conflict between We'll get into this, but something like an apocalypse in the way that we normally think of that. So there's a little bit, but not much precedent for this in Judaism. What about the New Testament? New Testament, uh, a couple of things. One, you have the Gospels talking about continents, right? Uh, the famous passage is Matthew 19, 12, where Jesus talks about eunuchs, right? Some people are born eunuchs. Other people are made eunuchs. Some become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And then he says, um, again, all this from memory since I have no notes, um, that some people, uh, let him who can do this do this, basically, is what I'm saying. So he seems to commend this. It's not a command, obviously. He's not saying, well, you all must become eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And I should stress uh, something, and I'll, re I'll repeat this because I'm a teacher. I repeat myself for a living. Um, one of the things when we talk about eunuchs or not having sex in the ancient world
I probably shouldn't use that term because um, of all the authors I came through reading through this, only one person mentioned it, but they thought about uh, marriage and family so much differently from, maybe not some of you, but uh, in our modern society, we naturally associate having marriage with having sex. And I say that, of course they did that back then, but having a family, having a lineage was just as important for these people. Uh, Definitely for the Jewish people, because they were all about lineage, obviously. Um, Not having children was a humongous sacrifice to ask. So keep that in mind when we go through, and I'll I'll come back to that. But um, other thing about the Gospels is that Jesus explicitly links, uh, here I just used the term celibacy, I mean continence, with the resurrection. Because, of course, he's talking to the Pharisees. No, this should be the Sadducees at one point about the resurrection of the dead. And they're asking, well, how many wives will they have in the resurrection? He says, you're totally wrong. In the resurrected life, they will, be, they will neither marry nor give it in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. So he links it pretty clearly, the idea of continence, with uh, the resurrection. And then finally, I've already met, kind of mentioned this, the Gospels on chastity. Uh, not only the things which defile a man, some of which are, of course, unchastity, but also, of course, his injunctions about uh, anyone who has lustful thoughts about a woman has already committed adultery. Jesus is sort of raising the bar for how people should act, uh, right? And so this is an interior thing as well. That's kind of what I think uh, will come back to this, that you're going to have efforts by the church and the early church to say, okay, how can we say guarantee? Yeah, how can we test men to see if they are chaste enough Confident enough to be clergy, but he never mentions this. He never connects uh, that to the clergy really explicitly in uh, the Gospels. The other main source, of course, for the teachings on uh, both the clergy but also for celibacy uh, are St. Paul's writings, particularly two letters. One is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in which he talks about how uh, at one point he says, I wish everyone would be, be like me, which presumably he was continent by that point if he had been married or if he, his wife had died, passed away or something. And he was celibate as well. Uh, or not celibate, at least continent, right? Because he was, he was on a mission, right? This is someone who's um, definitely someone who has apocalyptic expectations. But says everyone should remain in the state they've been called. So if you're married, stay married, don't get divorced. So if, you're, um, if you are uh, single, stay single. Um, sorry, it's a little, a little cold in here. Um, uh, and so he says stay in that state primarily because, again, he expects the return of Christ soon. And I say this because for the most part you get the sense that Paul is a pretty traditional Jewish rabbi. He'd probably want people to, and he, said, he gives traditional answers, by the way. If you can't, you can't control yourself, it's better to marry than to, he thinks of marriage as being an outlet for, for, uh, for, Sex, basically. Um, and so you have that teaching again. And he says this, it's not a command of his. He's not commanding this with his authority, he is recommending it. Um, but he pretty clearly says, I'd say clearly, and yet, again, you'll have debates about this throughout the patristic period. There's not, there are some interpretations that are more um, predominant than others. Um, a lot of people see this as saying, well, marriage and um, celibacy are equal states. Others think uh, that, and these are the two main ones, that no, he's actually saying that, well, marriage is good, continent celibacy is better. Huge thing, we'll come back to this in a moment. The other one, other major letter is, uh, this is the big one, especially in the patristic period, is First Timothy, where he's talking about, um, Paul, the author, whichever one you think it is, um, are talking about bishops, 
presbyters, deacons. And he says, of each, it actually says that each of them, also widows, who were an actual, that's an actual office in the early church, uh, that bishops must be a man of one wife. And so, first of all, the thing that you should note here, by the way, is that bishops, yes, they married uh, in the early church occasion. Or, well, I shouldn't even say that. That's even too much because the evidence is so, is so sparse. But there were bishops who were married in the early church. There were certainly priests who were, who were. Uh, as you're going to see, because part of what most people think this, this is, a man of one wife, is an injunction that they're only married once. Because there's a widespread feeling in the early church that if you get married more than once, that means you probably can't control yourself sexually. That means you're probably a horned dog, if you want to put it in those sorts of terms. Um, but no, the idea that you only got married once. Say you're married, then your wife dies. If you don't feel a need to get remarried, that must mean you have enough self-control. Right, you have that self-control that uh, someone would need to be a Christian, right? Because this is one of the big things. This would separate them, by the way, not just priests, but Christians in general from the society surrounding them in Corinth, in places like that. It was kind of a, not a total free for all, but it was a much more it was a much more um, libidinous society they lived in, right? So keep that in mind. Uh, and I should tell you, there is really there are many different interpretations of that. Um, of that passage when he gets to the patristic area, when they're deciding, okay, what's who should be allowed to be ordained, right? Does that mean okay, you can be married, but not have uh, not have kids afterwards? Does it mean you can be married uh, and uh, again uh, practice occasional continence? Does it mean you have to practice uh, perfect continence? Uh, and again, you're going to get different people saying different things in the patristic era, but that's the big one that so much ink is spilled upon in the early church. Uh, because it relates directly to uh, the priesthood and um, and um, the uh, tenets of office. Okay. In terms of evidence, there's really not a whole lot, uh, to be honest. Um, the debates about marriage and celibacy and continence in the early church, in terms of, and I say conclusive evidence, and what I mean by conclusive is there are lots of things, there are lots of, I'll get this in a moment. There are lots of people who write about this, but not directly. Uh, they'll talk about the clergy being celibate or continent. They'll talk about, wow, this this bishop, we know he's a great bishop because he, he essentially abandoned sex with his wife, or this this these clergy, we know the Christian clergy are great because they, um, they abandon uh, um, sexual intercourse, basically. Whereas other um, writers seem to seem to seem to say that no, they actually they were married. It was normal, um, and so it's real sketchy, really sketchy. The evidence before 300. Um, we also have another problem, and that problem is we know in the second century of the rise of something probably within Christianity, but also from out, without of it, is uh, an exaggerated emphasis on asceticism, on again on things like abstinence and stuff like this. In fact, there's actually a name given to these people. Uh, they're called encratites, hence encratism there. Um, in the middle of the second century, we know of people who were um, who were advocating that basically, not advocating, but they were actually saying that you should forbid people to marry, period. Not just clergy, but laity. But why? And this is, gets us to all sorts of, uh, all sorts of things I don't want to get into. It's a big, it's a big subject in, in the early church, but mainly because, again, they thought two things. One, you know, Christ didn't have sex. You shouldn't do it. If you're a Christian, it'd be perfectly pure all the time from the beginning. Uh, or uh, this was something, there are a lot of philosophies out there in the ancient world that saw the body as being something essentially bad or wicked. Sex is impure. Sex is wicked. 
The body is bad. The body is uh, a hindrance to the spirit. Therefore, you have to deny yourself those things. And uh, there were people, and we know this, by the way, because um, this is why sometimes the first letter to Timothy is, uh, tends to be dated much later than Paul's life, because he mentions people in First Timothy who are uh, uh, saying that people shouldn't marry uh, and shouldn't, uh, should abstain from certain foods and stuff like this, which, again, sounds like these people. Again, they could have existed in his day, too. It's not like it's that uh, big of a leap. Uh, but we know definitely from extra biblical sources from the 160s, 170s onward, there are these people in the Christian church on the edges of it trying to sort of um, basically, by the way, not only denigrate the body, denigrate marriage, which just gets us to the next, gets us to the next uh, set of evidence here. Um, <clears throat> because you do have, in the 2nd and 3rd century, some people beginning to write about this more and more. Um, in, usually in the context of these debates, the two major people are Tertullian, who is a North African Latin Christian uh, in writing in North Africa, and Clement of Alexandria, uh, who obviously is from Alexandria. And, and they both of them, uh, especially Tertullian, will talk about, will emphasize the continence of those in religious orders or in the clergy uh, and a couple of different um, a couple of his different works. He especially puts a lot of emphasis on this. And again, this would seem to be a good witness for, hey, does the clergy, were they supposed to be continent and celibate? Maybe. One of the problems with this is that Tertullian, toward the end of his life, sort of went over to one of those anchorite groups, <laughs> or ones that were close to them. Uh, they were a group called the Montanists. Uh, and they, at least the more extreme form of these groups we know of, uh, forbade people to marry. In fact, he began condemning anybody toward the end of his life who had a second marriage at all for any reason. And again, it goes back to that interpretation of First Timothy. Uh, and by the way, he sometimes Tertullian is, is taken to have died outside the church. He didn't. There's no evidence he was actually excommunicated or anything like that. But he kind of went toward that as he got to the end of his life. But in several of his later works, he mentions this: that hey, uh, basically, um, we know Christian clergy. That's one of the things that identifies them is their continents. So we have that evidence there. We also have evidence from Clement of Alexandria uh, about the continents, because the, the, the perpetual continents of clergy. Because Clement of Alexandria, because there are debates about, you know, you know, were the apostles right? Most scholars agree Peter must have been because they talked about his mother-in-law in one of the Gospels. Um, but uh, Clement of Alexandria, I think he actually says most of them were married. But he also says all the apostles were continent, though, <laughs> once they became Christians. And he's another one who also uh, talks about um, clerics being forbidden to have children after they're ordained. Clerics being, even if they're married, by the way. Uh, he's the one who talks about uh, the emphasis on uh, continence uh, for married clerics in a big way. It's a work called Stromata, uh, which he wrote in the uh, uh, 3rd century. Uh, and this is important partly because he is Clement's a philosopher, so he would be familiar with a lot of a lot of those non-Christian philosophies that denigrate the body. And so, again, one of the things that early church has a problem with is that kind of built into it, built into the New Testament, there's this tension. Oh, marriage is a good thing. You know, go back to Genesis, right? Jesus says this in the Gospels. On the other hand, the kingdom's coming. So there's no point in getting too comfortable on this lower life. And so, and plus, of course, eventually, you know, your ultimate destiny is the resurrected life, right? Heaven. You're not going to be marrying and giving a marriage then. So there's a real tension that blows up um, in the third and fourth centuries. Um, and so you'll also have, again, a few other thinkers touch on this. Origen, uh, who is also is a pupil of Clement of Alexandria, will talk about... Um, will complain about the impurity of certain clerics, and we assume he doesn't specify. He means they're probably sexually impure somehow. 
Um, he'll complain in some of his commentaries about the dissolute lives of clergy. And again, we presume he probably means uh, in terms of being incontinent. And like a lot of thinkers, uh, not just Origen, but pretty much everyone before him, this is something to emphasize, again, in general terms. One of the things that all these thinkers in the early church emphasize is continence is, a, is almost a sign of God's grace. When you become a Christian, you, you, you gain the ability to be chaste. You gain the ability to control your sexual impulses. Um, again, they never it's very rarely applied specifically to the clergy when they say things like this, but it's everywhere. Um, just think of, go out and try to find it. I couldn't find any. Uh, there's no saint you can think of, no matter how legendary they are in the early church through the first three or four centuries. Um, when you hear their, they hear their stories, they're never admired because they were married and had kids and they were good parents. <laughs> they're saints because they gave up the kingdom, they gave up their family, they went into the desert, they, 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 they became celibate, basically. Uh, they put an enormous amount of stress on being able to do that. It's almost a sort of sign of this. Uh, I mentioned two other uh, pieces of evidence just in passing. Hippolytus, who was actually a saint, and I didn't put it up there, He's interesting because um, he is sometimes taken to be a witness against the idea that, that continence, clerical continence, was at least widespread or obligatory. Uh, I say this because he actually accuses, he was actually at one point an anti-pope. He's from Rome. Uh, and he accused another pope, Callistus, who's also a saint. They're both saints. Uh, he was excommunicated at one point as well. Uh, and um, he wrote a really, yeah, the early church is fascinating. Um, he wrote a really, uh, really really, really uh, scornful attack on Callistus, saying he allowed clerics to have to be married three times, saying he allowed them to have all this other stuff. Uh, the problem with, the, with this uh, piece of evidence, and pretty much everybody agrees this is the problem with it, it's obviously rhetorical. Uh, he's just throwing whatever insult he can at Callistus. By the way, again, they were reconciled before their deaths. So this is, this is what I mean by it's not really clear, even when there is something, hey, people are, you know, clergy are doing this after ordination, it's not quite clear that's actually happening. And then finally, I mentioned the Didascalia Apostolorum, which is a um, it's a collection basically of I don't know if you call them church laws or canons or whatever, but they're a, a collection of uh, documents on the clergy, on bishops especially. Uh, and I mentioned it because it come, a because it's one of the earliest we have. It comes from Syria. Uh, I also mentioned it because it talks about when choosing bishops that they should only choose ones who are chaste. Uh, but particularly, they, they actually they don't command this, but they recommend men who are about 50, uh, 50 years of age or more. And again, one of the reasons, again, people think they may have said this is because, of course, once you're 50 years old, you're probably past the age where you're going to have kids. It may be evidence that they were thinking we want people who can be continent, which probably probably a better idea than a 20-year-old in most instances, right? Um, and the other, uh, uh, and so this is why I mentioned that uh, work there. So you have some of these, uh, um, there's other bits and pieces of evidence before 300, but it's very equivocal. It's like the Bible. You really can't, and I say this, I've read, I read authors who were dead certain, yes, all these clergy, they had sex like everybody else, and you can read virtually every one I've listed here in an opposite direction if you want. Uh, I've heard the opposite. Um, I read one book, uh, which I recommend, my name is Stefan Hyde, who tried the best he could to say, well, this is totally unequivocal. There must have been an obligatory norm for, this is like, you, you can see that. You can get that from that piece of evidence. The problem is it fits the totally opposite argument just, just as well. It really is difficult to find out what's going on before the 4th century. What happens in the 4th century to make that clearer? A couple of things, basically. Uh, and the 4th century is the crux of this debate, I should say. Uh, and it's the crux of the debate because all of a sudden now you begin to have something like church laws being laid down for this. 
you begin to have especially church councils being called to deal with issues like this. And in fact, the, like the, maybe the biggest turning point in the 4th century is the so-called Council of Elvira, uh, which is held in Spain, the Spanish Council in 306, which uh, has several canons that it lays down concerning this issue, but the most important one is Canon 33, which literally forbids clerics to have intercourse after they're married, after they're ordained, uh, which is essentially, we have essentially in the modern right and the Western right, uh, and it seems to be the first direct like piece of evidence which says, yes, this is obligatory on all the clergy in Spain, um, not universally, but uh, it's actually disputed whether this is authentic or not. The reason why, as we're going to see in a moment, you don't get anything that clear on this until the end of the 4th century, and there are some people who think this, was, uh, this canon would be added later. As far as I can tell, there's no actual textual evidence for that. They're just sort of saying, well, it's too early for the rest of this evidence. Uh, I don't necessarily buy that. I think this sounds authentic to me, but I don't know uh, from what I think of this. But there are other councils in um, in the early part of the uh, the fourth century who also begin to touch on these issues. Uh, the Council of Arles, for example, uh, in three fourteen, uh, will be called excuse me um, um, in uh, modern day France, uh, in which you're going to have um, uh, people talking about specifically things. Um, uh, you've heard the term spiritual marriage. This is the idea that you have, this is sort of hinted at in First Timothy, but the, or in some of Paul's letters, where you have a female sister, like a religious sister, traveling with you to sort of help you out. There apparently were clerics who had women live with them, basically to you know help run their household for them. You're going to begin to have uh, councils begin to pass legislation against that. Um, this is what happens at the Council of Arles. At the Council of Neo Caesarea in 315, you have uh, canons for things like uh, excommunicating priests who are uh, found guilty of adultery uh, or fornic- fornication after ordination. Uh, you also have, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in Council of Neo Caesarea, something I didn't point out as well, but sometimes you'll have decrees or pastoral documents which um, uh, they'll talk about the, the chastity of the wife of a clergyman. That is to say, in Council of Neo Caesarea, uh, if a husband of adult, uh, if someone's a husband of adulteress, he can't be ordained because of the actions of the wife. So this is increasingly be seen not just the chastity of the actual cleric, but his wife if he's married in that case as well. Uh, and then Council of Nicaea as well also touches on this idea of spiritual marriage. It forbids a cleric to live with anybody else except for his mother, his uh, sister, or his aunt. And so the whole spiritual marriage thing goes out the window. Uh, so there seems to be some sort of trend against this when you get to the 4th century. And there is some evidence, because this is very different today, the discipline with regards to uh, the Eastern Church. There is some evidence from the 4th uh, and the 5th centuries that there was, uh, that clerical continence was pretty widespread, maybe expected in areas of the Eastern Church. Um, of the people who are witnesses of this, the most important is uh, St. Epiphanius of Salamis, um, who we probably never heard of, but he wrote a couple of different, uh, probably a couple of different very important, actually, um, uh, works in which he states uh, unequivocally, uh, perpetual continence is required of all the clergy, by the way, including deacons. Uh, and this is important because Epiphanius is from Palestine, he's from the east, he settles in Salamis, which is in Greece. Um, but he says uh, his work Panarian, which is called, which is uh, one work was about the Christian faith. He says it's basically in several places. It's clear it's required of all clergy. 
uh, as well as his work uh, De Fide, uh, that it's pretty cut and dry. If you're a clergy, once you're ordained, no more sexual activity. You also have um, um, Eusebius of Caesarea. I don't have him up there, basically, but he also talks about this in some of his works. He's a bishop of Caesarea. You have also someone who normally he's actually a Western theologian. He's from the West. He made his bones in Rome. But St. Jerome, uh, who's kind of a cranky guy, if you don't know who this is, um, uh, from the West but traveled and lived the last 30 years of his life in Palestine, in Bethlehem, in a monastery. He traveled pretty widely throughout the the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, And he makes crystal clear that, uh, yes, not only are clergy celibate in the West but also in the East. Uh, in the Egyptian churches. In the churches of the East, they're required to be celibate. So there is some evidence for this. There's also some evidence in the writings of St. Basil of Caesarea, who is a very, very famous, very important theologian in the uh, Orthodox tradition, uh, where he seems to make um, uh, references to um, uh, continents being required of deacons uh, after their ordination in some of his letters. So you have this in the 4th century. But the real turning point comes with the decrees of Pope Sericius in the end, at the end of the 4th century. And this is usually where the argument turns. Um, and I have to do a little background on this to get you the, how, uh, uh, why this is important. In late 4th century, uh, you, have, um, uh, you had a bishop named Himerius who sent him a letter to the pope. Actually, Pope Demas, his predecessor first. Uh, he died before he could answer it. But Himerius uh, sent a letter to the pope uh, saying, we have this problem with clergy are married clergy in Spain. They are having children, uh, and so they won't obey the canons against doing this. And they asked first Damasus, okay, what do I do about this? Uh, and then uh, Sirigius eventually answered him. I'll get to his answers in a second because they're the, the focal point of all this. Um, but there's also a controversy going on in Rome about this exact same time period because a man named Jovinian. And Jovinian was a monk who... Um, very rare. He's probably the first really big thinker, and I haven't mentioned this so far. Um, the first, I wouldn't say, I guess you could say, uh, the first person really to attack the idea of clerical continence or continence in general uh, in the ancient church. Uh, he, essentially what he does is he objects to, again, and there are people, not just Christians, but there are, you know what Manichaeanism is? This is a sort of Eastern religion that comes from the Middle East sort of piggybacks on Christianity a little bit, but they teach things like the body is, is bad and stuff like this, and they denigrate marriage. And so uh, Jovinian's kind of reacting to the extremity of some of these Christian thinkers who are basically saying that, yes, marriage is inferior. Marriage is basically something you do if you can't control yourself in pretty harsh ways, one of whom, by the way, is St. Jerome. Uh, St. Jerome, can, if you don't know, he's perfectly, or he's a saint. He's a doctor of the church. He can say some really nasty things about marriage if you haven't read his works. Um, mostly, he understood, by the way, it was, a, it was a legitimate thing to do, but he, very rhetorical uh, was Jerome. Um, and Jovinian's reacting against this. In fact, he literally says, and this is what gets him in trouble, is that, because really what most people thought in the ancient world was, well, marriage is good, the continent lies better. It doesn't mean marriage is bad. What it means is that um, that life you're living when your continent is an anticipation of the resurrection. This is what Origen calls it. It calls it the, the angelic ordo or the angelic life because you're literally living like you're going to be living in the resurrection. So they do exalt that a lot. But most thinkers, like his teacher Clement, would have said, yes, marriage is still a great good. It's just this one happens to be better. But you had a lot of people in the late 4th century, and again, I, I don't mean to dump on Jerome. He is one of the people who pushes this. They really push hard on the idea that marriage is inferior. I mean, really, really... 
it's more rhetorical than anything else. It's not like Jerome said. Again, Jerome wouldn't say, you push and push to shove. Well, marriage is bad. Well, no, but um, it'd, be, it'd be that sort of thing. Um, but when Joe Janine got him in trouble was saying they were on an equal plane, which is something nobody really believed for the most part. Um, and so what happens is Sericius intervenes and answers Himerius, and he's the one who definitely, uh, for the first, not for the first, yeah, basically for the first time, spells out that, yes, um, all clergy must be continent upon their ordination, and that this idea goes back to the apostles. Is an apostolic, it uses the term, I have it in my uh, phrase here, goes back to the quote, the apostles and the fathers. Is an ancient tradition, you have to go back to it. Um, and it basically says to the clergy they should have, quote, no intercourse with their wives. And by the way, he's only talking about married clergy in this. That's the first letter he sends them. The second one he sends them um, more or less enjoins it on all the clergy. He uses the term that all the clergy are bound by this unbreakable law of continence and spells it out. Um, and in the same year, 3D6, he also issues a condemnation of Jovinian's teachings. Uh, and so this is where, from this period onward, you're going to have, this will be reaffirmed by his successor, Pope Innocent II, within about 10, 20 years. Um, this will become the norm throughout Western, the Western Church, basically going forward, that once you're ordained, no more sexual activity, basically. Again, there are always exceptions, but it will become that uh, pretty quickly uh, throughout the end of the ancient church and the end of the ancient world. What about the East? It's never as clear. And in fact, it's not clear even get to the 4th century, but there is evidence that there was something like at least a universal expectation of continence for married clerics. Uh, and in- increasingly fewer and fewer married clerics being ordained after a while. But um, particularly in the uh, 5th and 6th centuries, and this is the interesting thing about it in the East, uh, not so much from theologians, but there are actually imperial law codes. The Roman state, once it became Christian, began to issue legislation for the church, especially in the East. Uh, and the Theodosian Law Code uh, in 420 actually talks about, uh, again, forbidding, um, you know, uh, forbidding uh, clerics to live with, the, with, uh, with, you know, women other than their their uh, um, their sisters and stuff like this. But more particularly, the, the uh, Justinian Code. Justinian is the great uh, Byzantine emperor in the sixth century, who. Um, codifies Roman law, and several of his laws enjoin continence upon uh, clergy once they're ordained, um, and specifically bishops, uh, uh, not specifically, but, also, but especially bishops in terms of, um, in terms of uh, who can be ordained. But within a couple of centuries, this is going to change. And what's going to change, we know this, we have the documents, obviously, <clears throat> is that their discipline will change permanently at the Council of Trullo in 691. Um, Basically, the Council of Truo, I think this is canon, I don't have, the, have the, the actual canon, but there's a couple of canons, 12 and 13, um, which basically allows for married priests, anyway, uh, to have intercourse for their wives, uh, as long as they abstain for several days before they celebrate the liturgy. They don't have uh, daily Eucharist or daily liturgy in the same way that they do in the West, so this is easier to sort of uh, do for them. Uh, it reaffirms the ban on marriage after ordination. So even if you're married, uh, you can still you know, have kids. Once your wife's gone, that's it. No more marriage after you're ordained. Uh, and yet it also reaffirmed uh, Justinian's legislation uh, regarding married, married bishops, meaning if you had wives, you have to separate from them uh, and be continent, basically, which is why from uh, – um, let me see this here. Going forward. 
which is why um, from the ninth century onward, most bishops have been chosen in the Eastern churches from the monastic uh, from monastic life, or they become monks before they become bishops. Uh, and so, essentially, that law of perpetual uh, perpetual continence is actually uh, retained in the East, just uh, in the rank of bishop, not in the, uh, not in the ranks of uh, your ordinary priests, essentially. So that's what happened uh, with uh, the Eastern tradition after the fourth century. What happened in the Western tradition? Uh, I'm going to speed this up; it will take too long to do, uh, do otherwise. But what happens is this: uh, this requirement was in force in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire in the West, of course, collapses uh, after uh, 500, uh, 476 or so. Uh, and so what happens in the intervening centuries is that the discipline collapses. So that by the time Charlemagne in the 8th, uh, 9th century begins to re- sort of resurrect or try to resurrect something like an empire, you begin to have legislation being passed to uh, curb uh, uh, the excesses of married clergy. Uh, they not only have lots of not really a lot of married clergy in the way you get to the 8th, 9th, and 10th century. You also have clergy who have, uh, I use the term because they use it, concubines. Uh, you will have them having, living with uh, mistresses and stuff like this. Um, and for a variety of reasons I can't go into, I'm actually going to have a talk on the Gregorian reforms next year if I have, uh, if I have much time to do it. Uh, in the 11th century, there will be a reaction against all this. There will be a powerful reform movement within the church which they will pass the first legislation when you get to the, the 12th century, the Lateran Councils, which finally bans marriage uh, altogether for clerics. doesn't stop the problem with ha- living with concubines. That actually uh, is only done away with at the Council of Trent, which uh, does two things. One, it forbids absolutely, basically, uh, married men being uh, normally uh, admitted to the priesthood, but also, of course, establishes the seminary system, uh, which is the use of that. It's partly to train them spiritually, but it's also to weed out people who cannot hack the continent life and be abstinent. And that's where that eventually comes from, even though, again, it's it's supposed to be to guarantee, or at least least not guarantee, obviously, uh, to sort of um, test them uh, that they can, again, be continent and they can be uh, what they need to be as priests. And so since the Council of Trent, only unmarried continent men normally, normally are allowed to be, uh, to be adjoined to the priesthood. Um, Our Lady of Sorrows is actually, the pastor of Our Lady of Sorrows is actually the, the, um, the administrator of a, an Anglican ordinariate parish, which I'm a part of, if you don't know. Uh, that is to say they are priests who came from the Anglican tradition. We have two of them. They're both married. So uh, it is something that they do occasionally for limited reasons. So, where does that bring us to in the end? Um, this is my two cents. Um, first, uh, continence is clearly connected to the clergy in the early church. I don't know how you can deny that. Um, I don't believe. I, I this is. I, I don't believe that. Uh, I don't believe it was totally normal for clergy to get or, to be married, to get ordained, and then start having kids a lot. I don't think that was. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, well, I, I believe in, I, I like uh, the church's current, current discipline, but um, partly because we do have evidence that uh, certain, you know, for example, priests would, be this, would, be, would have children in the early church. We know that. We're never told that they had those children before they got ordained or after. Uh, we even had, I think, at least one pope I know is the son of a priest. I want to say Demesis was the one. I don't know how to think. I can't remember. So it happened. But we have no we have no way of knowing whether it was before or after. First of all, but secondly, it's just it'd be hard for me to believe, given just how widely praised it was, the continence, the celibacy, um, as a way of life that they would have to me 
Uh, again, I, I think it would have been like in certain areas. Yeah, they would have been tolerant of you know a priest having kids stuff like that. But I think they would have wanted most, at least of the, of the really fervent Christians, would have wanted, quite frankly, clergy who were more pure than they were. <laughs> uh, I think that is actually one of the things I have in mind is that okay, if we're all called to this, right? Because the resurrected life is essentially purifying yourself for the afterlife. Well, you naturally think the people who are farther along should be <laughs> are probably called to have a specific role, right? That makes sense to me anyway. Uh, it's also clear, by the way, the 4th century is crucial. The 4th century is the turning point for all of this. And it just depends on what you believe, really. Um, there are some people who just don't trust the fact that, quite frankly, it's a pope doing this in the 4th century and, and really coming down hard with this. Why? Because uh, Sericius was one of the first... Well, there actually had been popes before this who made you know, strong claims to papal authority. He was one of the first to, you know, I don't know if you know, listen to how medieval or, or, or ancient popes talked. He was one of the first, a lot of them would talk about, like, Peter speaking through them and really powerfully, like, thinking, you know, they are almost possessed by Peter. Or something. He was the first one to talk like that and write like that. In fact, his uh, letters to, um, to Himarius and about this issue are, are taken to be the first papal decretals, the first, the first official pronouncements of a pope we have. Uh, pronouncing on particular subjects like this. So there's some people who are kind of hanky because of the papal authority. There are some people, again, who just don't like the post-Constantinian church, if you came to my last talk, which none of you did. Um, <laughs> after Constantine converts, the church becomes a lot more powerful. And again, there is this sense that, hey, this is about the clergy aggrandizing itself. Um, I've never thought much of those, uh, those, uh, those, particular, um, those particular objections. What should be clear from all of this, by the way, and what I reason why I gave the title of the talk and advertised it as celibacy, <laughs> is that the real issue is not actually celibacy. I would have no problem personally if tomorrow the Pope wanted to have the same sort of same sort of um, um, discipline with regards to marriage that the uh, Eastern Rite has. And by the way, uh, my friend Ray there is actually a member of the Eastern Rite Catholic Church. They had the exact same discipline as the Orthodox do. So it's not as if that's something that's bad or anything like that. Uh, well, I mean, it has the same uh, discipline as the, uh, the Orthodox, where it's it, uh, continence and celibacy is. Uh, we are Orthodox, and they are Eastern Orthodox. Yes, yeah, I got you, I got you, I got you. Uh, I stand corrected. Um, but again, that's not the real issue. And I say this uh, in the sense that of... Um, um, uh, for my money, anyway, too many of the people who are pushing for the end of clerical celibacy, for the end of perpetual, uh, perfect perpetual continence in the West, uh, don't actually care about continence at all. And that is my worry and my concern. Um, uh, that I admire. I deeply admire the Western ideal. I think it is actually, I think it's good. Um, um, just as good if, you know, uh, just as good as the East. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, I don't buy the idea that it's somehow weird to be celibate. I don't buy the idea that. Well, and this is the idea I think is behind a lot of the criticisms um, that you have to have sex to have a normal life, to have a good life. I think that's, I think that's wrong. Um, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the last thing I'm going to mention, I, well, two things. One is that I think, I think clerical continence is not a matter of discipline. I think it's a matter of doctrine. That's my opinion. Uh, I don't think you can change that. I think you would break with apostolic tradition if you did that. Again, what it means to safeguard that, again, this is more flexibility maybe than the church has had for a long time. But, again, it couldn't be too different from what the East does because they do preserve that ideal with the bishops. And, of course, they also – I think their monastic life is a lot more healthy. That's the other place where you preserve it, uh, whereas ours is not very healthy at all in many ways. Um, 
Now I'll just leave it there. I'll leave it there. I'll end up. And if you have any questions, uh, please let me know. So there you go.